Reading today is from Mark 9, starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Uh, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sue. And as Nat had mentioned, we are kicking off season two of Mark's Gospel. And one thing I find helpful when I'm on Netflix or whatever, when I'm starting season two, is to do that recap of season one, because I've often forgotten some of the key parts of the plot. And so I thought it helpful if we just do a very, very quick one-minute overview of previously in Mark's Gospel. Well, who is Mark? Well, Mark is a companion of the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter is mentioned more times in Mark's Gospel than any other of the Apostles. Uh, he's almost always present. It's almost always as if it's his eyes that we read and see what is happening. Uh, the Gospel itself dates somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, uh, one of the earliest Gospels, most likely the earliest Gospel, very, very soon after the life of Jesus. So it's right close to the events. And Mark's biography of Jesus, his Gospel, uh, is not written in a kind of an abstract theological, well, it's theological, but not kind of big picture. It's, it's in-your-face, moment-by-moment account of what Jesus has done. It's kind of punchy, it's hard-hitting, it's got a quick pace. His favourite word is, and then, and then, and then. So he keeps the, the narrative moving. 
And what Mark is doing very cleverly by doing this kind of story of Jesus is he wants to put Jesus in front of you again and again and again until it's impossible to be neutral. And it's really clear that that's what Mark's purpose is, to put the person of Jesus in front of you again and again and again, to force you to decide, well, what do we do with this person? What do we do with Jesus? How do we respond? And Mark very cleverly kind of shapes his gospel in two halves. The first half is the one we looked at last year, chapters 1 to 8, looks at the big question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the second part in verses 9 to 16 looks at what is Jesus' purpose? What is his mission? What did he come to do? And so the very end of chapter 8, we, we kind of end up with this high point where it looks like Peter finally understands who Jesus is. You are the Christ, he says. You are God's promised king. But then Jesus says to him, yeah, that's right, but I'm going to die and be raised to life again. And Peter says, no, 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 you've, you've, you've got it wrong. Jesus' followers do find it difficult to understand what Jesus' mission is. To reconcile a king, a ruler, a victor, with someone who says they're going to die seems incompatible. And so it kind of makes sense, right? How on earth do those things fit together? And so from chapter 9 onwards, Jesus will particularly explain how these two things come together. How a king will be crucified. How the identity and the, and the purpose of, and mission of Jesus will come together. And what we'll see is Jesus will take up his cross and he will call us to do the same thing. And throughout Jesus' life, we see that the cross and glory are linked. And the cross and glory will be linked in our lives as well. That is what it means, as we have the words up here, to take up your cross and follow me. And from the opening verses of chapter 9, where we're going to put verse 1 in the previous section, the chapters, by the way, are not ordained by, by God. They've been put in by an editor who, as most editors would know, didn't get it exactly right. So we're starting the story at verse 2 of chapter 9. And what we see firstly is this big thing. We actually see the glory of Jesus' divinity. The fact that Jesus is God in all of his glory. So chapter 9, we start with Jesus and three of the disciples, uh, Peter, James and John, being taken up a mountain. By the way, in the Bible, this is not just a hike. Anytime something happens, uh, uh, goes up a mountain, someone goes up a mountain, something big and momentous will happen. People meet with God on mountains in the Bible. It's where the Ten Commandments, right? Moses goes up and meets with God. In fact, one of the commentators says that mountains are the suburbs of heaven. They're kind of outside the tram line of heaven, right? So they're in the burbs. God's still there, but it's, you know. And there's no exception in this, this moment in Jesus' life. Jesus radiates God's glory uh, Moses and Elijah are there. God himself speaks to the disciples from a cloud. So what's going on? 
We need to get a bit of context to understand just how profound these events are. If we go back hundreds of years to the story of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, God comes to Mount Sinai and spoke to his people out of a cloud. Moses goes up the mountain and he begs to see God in all of his glory. Show me your infinite greatness, God, he says, your unimaginable beauty and power. But there is a rather large problem. See, God makes it very clear. Look, you cannot see me in all of my glory if you want to stay alive. Mutually incompatible. (laughs) You want to stay alive? Great. You want to see my glory? Great. Those two things together? Not great. It is so overwhelming, majestic, powerful, there is no chance you will survive. And so we read that God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hands and he just sees the back of his train, so to speak, not not steam train, you know, clothed train, at just the smallest amount of God's glory. And Moses is completely undone. He could not even get close, and yet he descends the mountain, his face aglow, reflecting just a tiny amount of God's glory. Let's see whether I can cope with that. Hundreds of years later, we're up a mountain again, and once again, there is glory. Thanks, Ben. We read in verse 3, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's like an advertising campaign, isn't it? Once again, there's a voice in a cloud, and even Moses is there, verse 4. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. I always wonder what they're talking about. That would be a fascinating conversation. But what's really interesting is Moses and Elijah are the only two people in the Old Testament who have an encounter with God on top of a mountain. That's it. And yet here they are again. Moses, of course, is linked to the story of the Exodus, God's great rescue, and the giving of the law on top of the mountain, the law. Elijah is, of course, the prophet. And the prophet particularly who would would said to appear when the day of the Lord would come, when he would come as the king and restore Israel and restore the entire world. That was the promise. Uh, Malachi 4 puts it this way. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb, that's the mountain, for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So it looks like that prophecy is coming true. Is this Mount Sinai 2.0? The answer is, it is something even more. There are two remarkable facts that happen in this this narrative of this mountain. The first is why Moses reflected God's glory as the moon reflects the sun. Jesus himself is the source of God's glory. It radiates from him. God's glory is the external manifestation of his being, his kingly rule, his presence. It literally means his weightiness, his heaviness. 
It's his terrifying character, his magnificence, his beauty, his honor, his splendor, his power, his brilliance. And so whenever we read of giving glory to God or of us glorifying him, we're not adding to God's glory as if we could. We are recognizing and acknowledging the God who already is all glorious. See, Jesus isn't just pointing to God, to the glory of God like Elijah and Moses did and the other prophets. Jesus is God in all his glory. It's a very profound moment, particularly with the building up of the question, who is Jesus? You are the Christ, and the very next thing is, and he's the glorious God. Yes, in human form, but God in all his glory. As Hebrew 1.3 puts it, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's who we get a glimpse of, just a glimpse of, in Mark 9. That's the first remarkable fact. The second is that here are Peter and James and John in the presence of the glorious God and they don't die. They don't die. That should be the outcome we're expecting. It's like walking into an active nuclear reaction and then coming out again saying, oh, it's all good, feel fine. See, when God told Moses that no one could see his face and live, what God is showing there is that there is an infinite gap between God and humanity. Our humanity cannot endure the perfect and powerful presence of a holy God. And this, by the way, explains the disciples' response, why they're so terrified. Uh, Peter is quite, it's almost humorous. Peter says, it's good to be here, but he's kind of saying it in that kind of panicked voice. They're confused, they're frightened. And what does Peter offer to do? Something rather strange. Did you read that in the text? You come into the presence of the almighty and all-powerful God, and what do you do? Peter says, let's put up some tents. Some tents. Why? It's a bit surreal that going camping would be the response to meeting the glory of God. Well, when we understand what that word means, it helps us. The word literally means tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And back in Exodus, when God's glory came down from Mount Sinai, the Hebrew people built a tabernacle, a tent a tent of meeting place. See, the tabernacle before the temple had been built was a place where a priest would offer sacrifices to take away the sin of the people to allow them to come into God's presence, to mediate the gap between God, holy and perfect, and humanity, sinful. You needed a tabernacle, a way of, of closing the gap. And I think that's what Peter's trying to do. He's saying, we need something. We need a tabernacle to protect us from the presence of God because we're in serious trouble. And then in verse 7, 
the cloud of God's glory covers them all. It literally says it overshadows them. It descends upon them. It it kind of goes from this, this amazing, dazzling brightness to completely overwhelming darkness as the cloud descends. And from the darkness and the cloud, God speaks. And he says, this is my son. Listen to him. The most holy and glorious God has declared who Jesus truly is. He's not one of the prophets like Elijah. He's not even like Moses who who rescued his people and gave the law. Jesus is God's glorious son. It's been shown with the brilliant brightness of glory. It's been shown with the terrifying cloud and darkness as God speaks. And did you hear the echoes of Jesus' baptism there? This is my son. And the command? Listen to him. There's an imperative there. This is what they are to do. Yet Peter, James and John are in the terrifying presence of God and don't die. And the answer, I think, is subtly hinted at in verse 8. Why don't they do it? Well, verse 8, suddenly they looked around... The cloud goes, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses has gone, Elijah has gone. I think what Mark is very cleverly showing us here is that Jesus remains that mediator, the bridge over the gap between humanity and God. That's why they don't die. Jesus is the tabernacle, that meeting place to end all tabernacles. He'll be the priest to end all priests. He'll be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is both terrifyingly holy, truly God, and humanity. Who else can bridge that gap? But Jesus. Now, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this part of the story, this part of the narrative? Well, I think first and foremost, it reminds us that Jesus is not safe. He's good, yes. He loves us, yes. But he's not safe and small. He's not confinable. He's not your mate or your buddy. He is your Lord and Saviour. That's the language of Scripture. He is God's Son in all His terrifying glory. Have you ever tried to look directly at the Son? This is the one who made it. And this means that Jesus must be our first and our last He must shape your life. He must shape your thinking because if you're like me, the person I like to start with is one of my favorite people, me. And here's the problem is we are not the first. We are not number one. 
In Jesus dwells all the fullness of God. Not in John, as much as you might think that, or not. Everything is from him and everything is for him. Everything finds its purpose in him. Everything was created by him, including you and including me. We are created first and foremost to give glory to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That is the response we give. That is our agenda to seek to serve our Lord and Saviour. Too often we want Jesus to be the means to our ends. Can you help me with this? And we are called, of course, to pray those prayers. But first and foremost, we need to see who Jesus is. Lord, Master, Saviour. We are the means to Jesus' ends. What's the command to God? He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to his words. What does he call you to do? To pick up your cross and follow him. That's the glory of Jesus' divinity. Well, secondly, we see the glory of Jesus' mission. See, Jesus' transfiguration is not just to convince his disciples, and indeed us, that Jesus is God, although certainly it does that profoundly and powerfully. It is also to prepare them for mission. And what we'll see is, as we continue through the gospel story and into Acts, the mission of these men and women who follow Jesus was to proclaim the life-changing person of Jesus, risen from the dead, defeater of evil, giver of life to the nations. That's their mission. But what's quite strange is when they come down from the mountain, look what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why would Jesus say that? Can you imagine, like, you have just met God in his infinite glory and survived, and as a sort of side bonus, met Moses and Elijah, and he says, don't tell anyone. Why? This is, this is astonishing. We tried to build tents. Because they won't understand what the full meaning of these events are until after Jesus is raised from the dead. They'll get a complete misunderstanding of what the gospel is. See, the transfiguration is a glimpse and looking forward to two things, both the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. It's a little hint, a little preview. And in speaking of his resurrection as they come down the mountain, Jesus is reminding the disciples of his mission, why he has come. I am the Christ, I will suffer and die and be raised. That's my mission. It's not hanging around at the top of mountains. In other words, he wants to prepare them for the mission ahead. They won't understand it yet. And we can see from verses 10 and 11, they're confused about what rising from the dead means. And it's easy to kind of think, oh, these silly, silly disciples, how, how could they not see this? 
That is completely understandable from their worldview. The Jewish worldview was that there would be a rising of the dead at the last day when the, when the day of the Lord came, a general resurrection. So they're confused when Jesus says that he will be raised from the dead. And they're confused about who Elijah is. It's really clear that what Jesus is saying in verses 12 is that John the Baptist is Elijah. And in fact, he says overtly so in Luke's account of this uh, trans, uh, transfiguration. So they're wrestling with it, they're struggling with it. But when we read 2 Peter, it's really clear that they finally get it. That they do understand Jesus' mission after the resurrection. And they proclaim the gospel of Jesus' life, death and resurrection to the nations. See, in 2 Peter, written by the same Peter who's gone up the mountain here, 2 Peter 1.16 says this, For we do not follow cleverly devised stories... When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Which is exactly what they've just seen here. They are literally eyewitnesses to the glorious majesty of Jesus. That was their mission, to proclaim life, death and resurrection. And that is the mission of God's church. It remains the same. It's the centre of what we do here at St. Jude's. As we begin a new year of teaching, what are we doing? Well, we're doing the same thing that we've done for 150 plus years here at St. Jude's and, and millennia before, proclaiming the Lord Jesus to the nations. We have about 35-ish nations, people from different cultural groups and language groups and countries at St. Jude's. What an amazing blessing that is. I always tell new people, the colours on the wall, they're pretty, right? They pick up the stained glass windows, that's true. But they also speak of the many cultures and language and colours of God's people united in the one Lord Jesus who's come, died and been raised again. That is our mission. That is the glory of Jesus' mission. We must not see anyone but Jesus. But in this narrative too, we are also given some context around the location of this mission, of Jesus' mission. So it's on the next slide, thanks. See, the location of our mission as God's people is not one glorious mountaintop experience to the next. It is in the broken valley of this world. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 9, and I'm not going to steal, I'm not sure who's preaching next week, Nat, is it you? I'm going to steal too much of Nat's thunder. I'm giving you a taste so you want to come back and listen. Um, they don't come down the mountain holding hands, singing, shine, Jesus, shine, right? That would be the, the peak moment for them, right? They've literally seen Jesus shine, fill the earth with the Father's glory. That, that's kind of what you expect, but what we shall see next week is as they come down, three things happen straight away. There is argument, there is disbelief, and there is overt evil at work. That's the rest of chapter 9. Disbelief, argument, and overt evil. That's the very next thing these, these followers of Jesus confront after having this mountaintop experience. And it's a reminder that our mission is not on top of the mountain, one religious high to the next... Our mission is down in the world with its brokenness, darkness, and sin. 
Now, by the way, uh, I don't want to say that spiritual and mountaintop experiences are bad. Though they are wonderful. They can be deeply encouraging. You can have those moments when you so see the glory of God, where you are so filled with encouragement that it spurs you on to praise God. And they are good and beautiful things. But they prepare us for the spiritual battle of this world. We are behind enemy lines. That's the language of Scripture. We are not on the mountaintop. We are in the valley that is both beautiful and broken because it has turned away from its maker. See, Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, it'll be one glorious mountaintop experience after another. That is a holiday in New Zealand. Well, so I've been told, that looks amazing, right? If you want that, have a holiday. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not the call of Christ. Verse 12, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. If you want to be his followers, climb the mountain with me and enjoy one spiritual high after another. Pretty sure that's not what it says behind me. They are not Jesus' words. Take up your cross and follow me. That tells us about the context of our mission. That is the radical nature of Jesus' mission and the radical nature that he calls us to follow. And that is both the glorious, also the glorious nature of Jesus' mission, and that is the glorious nature of the mission that he calls us to, to work and serve in. Because as we'll read through Mark's gospel, what we'll see is the ultimate power and glory of Jesus won't be displayed on a mountaintop, but on a Roman cross. The most profound moment where there is darkness, where there are earthquakes, where Jesus bears the sins for single, uh, sinful humanity and then is raised to life again. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is what the cross is. From a human perspective, a failure. The mountaintop experience is way more impressive. But the mountaintop experience didn't save anyone. It is the cross where we see salvation. Jesus, crucified and raised, must be the center of our vision and our mission. We must not see anyone but him, both crucified and glorified. Listen to him. With that challenge before us from God's word, we're going to respond after I've prayed by singing praise to this one who is before the throne of God above, our Savior who intercedes for us as the glorious Son of God. But before we sing, let me pray that we would respond to God's word with obedience. Gracious Lord Father, 
Your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the most glorious, powerful, and wonderful person that we could honor. As we reflect on his transfiguration, we pray that you will lift our eyes to the glory of Christ, that we would see that in him all the glory and power of God resides. And we thank you that he is both God and man. And that being glorious did not stop him from taking human form and dying for us and being raised to life again. And so, Father, we ask that we would put him first in all things and declare him first in all things and listen to him first in all things. Amen.